Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Every year since 1976, usually in February, the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater performs in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. It's a magical time of year for many of us. When the pandemic ended in person performance, Ailey dancers were among the earliest to appear online, often dancing at home or outdoors. Now, Ailey Extension and Area Atlanta present Ailey Experience Destination Dance Atlanta, a virtual multi-day festival beginning today. Later this hour, we'll hear about their robust offerings from Matthew Rushing, Ailey choreographer and associate artistic director, and Lisa Johnson-Willingham, the director of Ailey Extension. First, a film about another black artist with an enduring mark on history. This Sunday, our PBS station, ATL-PBA, will air Voice of Freedom, a documentary about the great singer Marian Anderson. The film is offered in honor of Black History Month on PBS, part of the series American Experience. Joining me now are two scholars who appear in the documentary. Adrian Lentz-Smith is professor of history, African, and African-American studies at Duke University. And Professor Alicia Lola Jones, whose specialty is in the areas of folklore and musicology at Indiana University. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, we're delighted to be here. For those unfamiliar with Marian Anderson, would you explain her rise from a six-year-old known as the baby contralto to become the magnificent singer ultimately described as the voice of this century? Sure. Um, 
Marian Anderson was someone whose rise was powered by a formidable um, inherent talent, coupled with some really important interventions by supportive community and mentors, and ultimately training. Although we should say, so she grew up in the Philadelphia community, um, known within the Black community in Philadelphia for her singing skills, and her community wanted to send her to the Philadelphia Musical Academy to train, and she wasn't even allowed to, to audition or apply because she was Black. So she was someone with a tremendous um, inherent talent whose career could easily have been derailed at the very beginning because of the sort of arbitrary cruelty of segregation. I think also, um, as, as Professor Adrian has mentioned, it's important to talk about the communities that she had in order to make her musical formation happen, her church, the civic organization, uh, the National Association of Negro Musicians. We could list several uh, networks that were involved in her formation and as a result of, of this sort of um, village, this national and eventually international village, she was able to enter onto the world stage um, in a moment in time where uh, African-Americans were not permitted to ascend through uh, the formal channels at all. And so it's, it's remarkable to see um, how she became the voice of African-Americans and, and the voice really of the nation. Yeah. Did the Philadelphia Academy of Music ever issue an apology? I believe um, where she applied um, went out of business and then there was some repurposing that occurred. So um, yeah, I'm unaware of an apology. I also think that there are a lot of times when institutions don't apologize because they don't always know their own histories or the facts of their own histories. We'll talk probably a little bit later about the daughters of the American Revolution who barred um, Anderson from performing in Constitution Hall. And they developed an understanding of that decision as it being Washington DC law or municipal policy rather than their own policy that they enacted and enforced. Unbelievable. Sounds convenient. Way too convenient. Beyond classical music lovers, Marian Anderson is most famous for her performance in 1939 at the Lincoln Memorial in front of 75,000 people. Before we get to that, would you talk about how the dedication of the Lincoln Memorial in 1919 fell short? Wow, I think the dedication um, really was a sobering moment in history to revisit through the documentary, largely because it actually resembles some of what we're seeing today in terms of uh, the erecting of memorials and statues, and how there are many narratives associated with our politicians and historic figures. But in that moment, Lincoln was re-inscribed and redefined in terms of his connection to the Civil War and to 
white nationalist values. During that particular moment, there was a parade of uh, members of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, miles of, uh, of this representation to celebrate a man who has been said to uh, be instrumental in the emancipation of those who were enslaved. And so it's, it's really interesting how people remember the moments differently. And her moment at the Lincoln Memorial was a, a way of reclaiming that space and reclaiming um, the significance of, of President Lincoln. Genius, genius draws no color line. And so it is fitting that Marian Anderson should raise her voice in tribute to the noble Lincoln whom mankind will ever honor. dedication in 1922 was segregated and with a you know tiny set aside space for black people the one of the few black speakers Robert Moten, who was the head of Tuskegee had a speech in which he evoked the idea of Lincoln as the great emancipator and said that his vision would not be um, fulfilled or completed until America gave black citizens the rights to which they were entitled, that part of his speech was censored. So that all he was left to give in this dedication was a kind of anodyne, generic evocation of a Lincoln without principles and teeth. And that kind of stands in for the ways in which the memory of the Civil War had been stripped of its emancipatory power and just made to be a story about white people fighting about abstractions. Uh, the Chicago Defender, major black newspaper, urged a boycott of the Lincoln Memorial. <laughs> Professor Lent Smith, the year 1919 was horrific with racial violence, and Marian Anderson was unwittingly caught up in it during a trip to Chicago. How did she manage in what you describe as a powder keg? You know, she was going to give what was really her first concert, and she basically had to wait out a riot, right? The, the National Association of Negro Musicians, they didn't want to cancel it, but this is literally a city in which people are being attacked on the street. As I think I mentioned in the documentary, there are sort of horrible and searing images of Black folks being set on fire. There are Black soldiers who've gone to their armory to get weapons to defend their neighborhoods and, and street corners. And all of these are happening as Anderson is kind of tucked into a room 
waiting for her chance to sing in this occasion that she, you know, kind of happened into in this moment in the red summer of 1919 in which violence was, you know, all over the nation and horrific. And it was really white mobs, white-led racial terror. Here in Atlanta, we commemorate an event each year called the Atlanta Music Festival, which began in 1910 as the Atlanta Colored Music Festival. Professor Jones, too few people know that early in the 20th century, there was a black audience for classical music and accomplished black classical musicians. Will you elaborate, please? Oh, I well, I stand proudly in that legacy of black musicians who were trained in Western European concert musics and Western musics of the United States. There has been a thriving community of African Americans who have participated in the scene um, for as long as formal education and music has been available. Um, we can look back as far as the Fish Jubilee singers, who in many ways represented the sound of the United States over and against traditions, uh, harmful traditions like the Blackface minstrelsy um, music that we know of. Uh, the Fish Jubilee singers were uh, the, the group that Roland Hayes pointed to, um, who was covered in the documentary, as being responsible for instilling in him the importance of performing the Negro spiritual. And these uses of our folk traditions on the concert stage have been a way that we've personalized our presence um, throughout the 20th and 21st century. And I will add that Marian Anderson was very, very intentional about incorporating not only the quote-unquote standard repertoire that is expected of a recitalist or concert artist, she also included her consciousness as an African-American woman who had access to new music uh, by um, various composers, one of whom I I've written about is Florence Price who is experiencing a re renaissance presently and who was the composer that she closed her recital with on that, that celebrated uh, 1939 recital. In 1923, Marian Anderson made her first recording for RCA Victor singing Negro spirituals arranged by the composer and renowned baritone Harry Burley. Why was that extraordinary? 
Oh my goodness. Uh, again, it's a, yet another signifier of a longstanding tradition. Uh, Harry T. Burley was a pioneer, if you will, in um, the arranged compositions of um, Negro spirituals. He was a part of a cadre of musicians at the, the turn of the century who were seeking ways to make a case for an American music, music of the people uh, that recognized. And on some level, in, in his estimation of what uh, good education was, um, on some level, elevating uh, the music. And to this day, I will tell you that uh, African-American concert artists often get that anthology of music as their initiation, if you will. Um, he remains an important figure for what Americanness means from an African-American uh, perspective. Yes, it's very important. How was her recording received? Oh, it is, it is still to this day a legendary and landmark recording because it was the first of its kind. It was a struggle really to get access to that sort of exposure in, in the emerging technology. I know that without, throughout curricula, um, that particular uh, recording is still heralded as a, a milestone for African-American representation globally. Professors Alicia Lola Jones and Adrian Lent Smith discussing the new PBS documentary, Voice of Freedom. We'll be back with more after a short break. You're listening to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening.
We're back with Adrian Lent Smith and Alicia Lola Jones, two professors featured prominently in the new PBS documentary Voice of Freedom about the illustrious singer Marian Anderson. Here, Professor Lent Smith explains why the great tenor Roland Hayes was crucial to Marian Anderson's life. So Roland Hayes was a famous and celebrated tenor, an internationally known musician in his or singer in his own right, who when Marian Anderson was still a girl before she had even tried out or tried to go to music school, recognized her talent, offered himself as a mentor and a supporter, introducing her to other supporters bringing her along and encouraging her and really in a way that I think is quite lovely, helping her to imagine that she could be a singer, right? That she could do, do something with this, this talent that she had. And in the 1920s, as she was, you know, pursuing training, building a career, he continued to support her. And after she has a sort of debacle of a concert in New York City, where she received poor reviews and felt crushed, Hayes was one of the people who encouraged her to go to Europe and and to continue her training there. Yeah, in 1927, she sailed for England. What did she discover about life as a Black person in London? You know, so you hear all of these stories of people going overseas, Black folks going overseas and really realizing the particularity of the form of racial order that they had grown up in and around. And she gets some of that. London is more open than a lot of the places she'd been traveling in the U.S. At the same time, it has its own empire and its own racial uh, dynamics around African descended people. So she gets some space to kind of play with being herself unfettered, but she also has it in the midst of this kind of fervent and growing anti-colonial and on some level pan-Africanist politics. She'd travel a lot of other places besides London where she was even more free. And as I think Alicia and other folks in the, in the documentary described, she kind of is able to get her swerve on a little bit, both as a singer and as a woman. <laughs> She especially enjoyed performing in Scandinavia, touring for seven months, the documentary points out. Why did she feel free and at home in those Scandinavian countries? Wow. I mean, she was, she was, her instrument was well received. You know, for the musician, I, I have to say that Her journey really parallels what um, musicians do to this day in terms of um, making their way through the very same countries and specifically targeting the Salzburg Festival, which um, really is the backdrop of the movie we have come to love, uh, The Sound of Music. I can recall visiting Salzburg and in many ways uh, recalling her narrative through a similar journey. I could see I could see how she would fall in love with not only the vistas but also the cultural significance of music making and music of the people folk music arts 
and her vocal qualities are already sort of audible in that region of Europe. So in many ways, uh, she was made for that landscape and that soundscape and really set a, a path that musicians follow to this day and celebrate to this day. Her vocal range was contralto. What distinguishes that type of voice? The contralto is a rare vocal designation among women. It is the lowest fach, to use a German term, for the singer. And it sits lower than uh, the mezzo-soprano in terms of a, a soloist designation or uh, the conventional alto range that we are accustomed to um, and overlaps with the, the tenor range. So uh, she was not only unique as a recitalist of um, folk music and art music traditions, but she was unique in terms of the velvety quality within her voice and the, the lower range that she was able to, to get as a, a musician. So she came of age personally as well as professionally in Europe, and a turning point came with meeting the impresario Saul Hurok. What did that mean for Marian Anderson's career? Well, Saul Hurok was a um, great supporter of her. He treated her, at least, you know, as the documentary says, as an equal, right? Um, or at least as a partner, perhaps not as an equal. He's also a marketing genius. So yes. um, uh, Alicia mentioned the Salzburg Festival, which becomes this really fascinating site in you know, the sort of story of the anti-fascist and fascist 1930s, where she's gone to sing, but in this moment when um, Nazis and fascists are rewriting the racial codes, she's barred from performing at the festival, but has a concert anyway, that all of the anti-fascist musicians come to, right, sort of flock to support her and to make this a moment of anti-fascist politics, including Toscanini, the conductor, who hears her sing, comes up to her and says, there, a voice like this comes along in a hundred years. Saul Hurok, who again, like the guy can do a slogan, um, <laughs> Saul Hurok repackages that as her being the voice of the century. And that's kind of actually the way that she's known and introduced and sold and discussed even now. Like I've called her the voice of a century a gazillion times in the past several weeks I'm talking about. You, you point out the terrible fact that Hitler praised the brutality of Jim Crow America and emulated that dehumanization in drafting the Nuremberg race laws of 1935. Even as an American, Marian Anderson wasn't exempt from those laws in Germany and Austria, which were still the music capitals of Europe. So what happens when she returns to the U.S. triumphant as a singer, but still a second-class citizen. Well, she comes back triumphant, you know, good, wonderful newspaper coverage of her, the you know, same New York critics who'd savaged her in 1927 are now talking about what a treasure America has in her. 
But the fact of the matter is, even as a wildly successful and on her way to being quite wealthy performer, she's a Black woman in a country that has not renounced or mitigated its commitment to segregation and white supremacy. And so she still finds herself traveling in difficult circumstances, in tense places in the South. She still finds herself subject to Jim Crow rules. So doing the kind of things that people do to protect their dignity, eating in her hotel room so that she um, doesn't have to deal with the humiliation of finding segregated dining, often playing if in sometimes in venues that are segregated among like the audience split, sometimes being relegated to tiny venues because there's no place for a black singer to perform. So as celebrated as she is in some ways, she's still navigating the kind of dangerous and sometimes brutal pettiness of Jim Crow in the United States. The film brings out that her activism, or she saw her activism as centered on her artistry. How did, how did she demonstrate that at her concert in Houston? This is a very dramatic point in the film. It's an iconic moment for her um, that I think resonates with many. One observer who attended the recital uh, noted that as is custom for concert artists, she acknowledged her, her guests in a segregated audience. She acknowledged the white patrons with uh, the, the sort of required bow and acknowledgement. And, Then she turned toward the African-American patrons and demonstrated a notable and lingering uh, bow that really marked her, who she was there to perform for um, as people uh, saw it. And I think um, those subtle ways, finding a way through body language, through repertoire, through remarks along the way were her her modes of showing the humanity in, in what she did as an artist. But yeah, it, it, really, it really was a, a way of her artfully protesting. I was going to say, I'm always a little ambivalent when people describe her as an activist, because I think her self-understanding and self-presentation was really as an artist, primarily, right? So, and, and with the belief that art has power and does work. Um, and then also as a woman who insisted on her dignity, right? Like it's, you know, it is out of vogue to talk about the politics of respectability, but if we think about it in the context of the time when saying, I am worthy and worthwhile, and you will see what shines from within me, right? In some ways she embodied that. And that ends up doing powerful, occasionally transformative work But the activism part of her story is really about kind of history or other social movements acting upon her and conscripting her into into these moments. Mm, Very well put. What was her relationship with the NAACP? Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) A long-standing one, right, Adrian? A a long-standing and... You never know who is watching is what we learned through her story. We learned through Mr. White, one of the leaders 
in the NAACP that he was present at some of the most pivotal moments in her life from her debut in the very first conference of NAM in 1919 to that 1920s recital that fell flat. He saw her, you know, smart from that recital. And he uh, later in preparation uh, for that, what would be the, the famous 1939 recital, he as a leader within the NAACP saw a moment to use her voice as a symbol of um, uh, what it means to be a citizen and what it means to, to take up space. But on the local and national level, the NAACP had uh, supported Marian Anderson musically through various uh, recitals. And after the recital, continued to be huge patrons of Marian Anderson. Yeah, and it should be said, Walter White, Atlantan, right, Atlanta-born and, and raised, is a force of nature. And, in you know, a force of nature can sometimes be a little tornado that, that kind of barrels and like cuts <laughs> across you. He's incredibly well-connected. He's incredibly tactical. He knows how to take a kind of moment or a symbol and make a campaign out of it. And that's what he does with Anderson. She's supposed to give a concert in DC and there's not really a good site for her to do it. And White turns that concert into a cause. The thing that strikes me, and the more I think about it, the more salty I think I would feel if I were Marian Anderson. A lot of what we end up knowing as the, the story of her ending up at her concert in 1939 is planned and done and pursued without anyone consulting her, right? Yeah, that, that comes out in the film and I <laughs> right, was shocked right. two, three, two, three months later after talking to his BFFs, Eleanor Roosevelt and Harold right. Ickes, right. Know, she's notified, oh, by the right. way, you can sing in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Right. I can do who what now? <laughs> Can't you imagine her? Like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> Well, the documentary builds as a crescendo to the climax of this now legendary concert on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Would you describe what unfolded there? Um, As we mentioned, she was supposed to do a benefit concert for Howard. She needs a place to have this concert. There aren't a lot of sites in D.C. at the time that can accommodate this. Walter White has the idea of asking the Daughters of the American Revolution to turn over Constitution Hall. The Daughters of the American Revolution say, oh no, I'm sorry, we, we cannot. And so the NAACP led by White uses that as a campaign to shed a light on the absurdities and hypocrisy of segregation, particularly on the cusp of conflict with the Nazis who've made white supremacy their rallying cry. White gets Eleanor Roosevelt involved. Eleanor Roosevelt eventually resigns from the DAR and announces it as a protest. That brings national attention to it. They go to Harold Ickes to see if they can use the Lincoln Memorial, like another flash of inspiration from White. Ickes and Eleanor go to FDR who says, and what I imagine is this kind of wonderfully careless way, right? This sort of like not super well thought out generosity of a patrician. 
she can sing, you know, she can sing from the top of the Washington Monument for all I care. And thus the, you know, the concert is okay. <laughs> at which point they say, oh, hey, Marion, you're going to do this gigantic outside concert with tens of thousands of people in DC. And Anderson, to her credit, while it might not be what she would have chosen to do, and I can imagine, you can actually see in the film footage, the look on her face that looks like, you know, a deer in the headlights for a brief second, as you see her sweeping, looking out upon the sea of people. But Anderson understands that this is a moment that requires her and requires her voice. And you know, the train has left the station, so she might as well make it a beautiful ride. And there you have it. And thus history is made. Yeah. Professor Jones, would you share your comments from the film regarding the Easter Sunday message? Well, it's interesting. I view that particular moment as a Washingtonian who regularly revisits the segregation laws of that time thinking about how various artists, whether it was Roland Hayes or the Hampton Institute, or even the cast of Porgy and Bess, various artists had tried to draw attention to the indignity of, of the Jim Crow uh, segregation laws. Uh, through Marian Anderson, though, we see this beautiful convergence and unfolding of access, of of platform, of poise, and being ready for the moment. And so when I think of how through that recital, not only did she uh, gain a larger audience, right? It was exponential, 75,000, right? 70,000 more than what would have been had at the Constitution Hall, not including who heard her through the radio, but she also in her own way demonstrated a finer sisterhood uh, by including Florence Price among the men or the male composers that she featured. And so to me, it was an illustration of resurrection. She truly arose in that moment to me, embodying what it meant to truly show up as a Black sister, as a Black woman and citizen of the United States. She arose. You gave me chills in the film and just now. What was the impact of the concert on future strategies of the civil rights movement and Dr. King in particular? Mm. I love that connection that was made, really plotting out a genealogy of the use of the Lincoln Memorial at significant civil rights moments. We see in the documentary that uh, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saw the recital at 10 years old. And so it was not lost on him the opportunity to occupy that space again during his literal monumental moment. And he included Marian Anderson uh, to mark and invoice the occasion when he took the stage. And I think it really demonstrates for us how history and um, awareness of space and place can really uh, compound the meaning and what we do as activists and what we do as leaders and, and spokespeople. I really think that that was the beauty of, of the documentary to show several genealogies actually of people, places and things uh, throughout. Beautiful thread, a beautiful thread. Mm -hmm. 
it's the concert consecrates the Lincoln Memorial as this space of celebration and as an aspirational space to reach towards Black citizenship um, and Black emancipation. Anderson, again, as this woman amongst the crowd, this diva on the one hand and warm member of the community on the other is something that we see carry forward. I mean, looking at her in that fur coat, I kept thinking of Aretha Franklin. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, yeah. absolutely. And I don't even know, I'm not sure that Franklin was alive in 1939. I think she was born a little bit after, but the but the images would have been available to her, right? The, the understanding of Anderson in that way, the Anderson's later career, you know, when she is the first person to perform at the Metropolitan Opera, right? That all of those would have also infused other women artists who might've been more outspoken or more activist or, you know, or kind of a, a later generation in black freedom politics, but, who couldn't have been themselves if Marian Anderson hadn't been herself first. Right. And you know, um, there has actually been a writing, I've, I've written about it, Tanisha Ford has been engaged about specifically the symbol of the fur coat, just like you already pointed toward the continuance of that. The fur coat for Black um, respectability and upward mobility not only represented status, but it was an article of clothing that was often bequeathed from one woman to another. It could be from a mother to a daughter or from a mentor to a mentee. Following her wardrobe is actually one way to understand her impact on divas that were to come later, from Denise Graves to Kathleen Battle, her articles of clothing, and even her ingenuity as a seamstress, mending her clothes on the road because of segregation issues. Uh, we really find a lot of her story in those stitches and in what may seem simple to us now, uh, a fur coat, but it really was another nod to her commitment to other women and representing dignity throughout the world. So rich in symbolism, so many aspects of her life and career. Professor Len Smith, I loved your quote in the film, art provides a language of transcendence in hopelessness. I thank you so very much for, for your participation in this Voice of Freedom documentary and for talking with us. Oh, you're so very welcome. Thank you. Professor Alicia Lola Jones and Professor Adrian Lent Smith discussing the new PBS documentary Voice of Freedom from American Experience. Our PBS station, ATL PBA, will air the program Sunday at 9 p.m. More information about the film can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Every year since 1976, usually in February, 
The Alvinelli American Dance Theater performs in Atlanta at the Fox Theater. It is a magical time of year for many of us. When the pandemic ended in person performance, elite dancers were among the earliest to appear online. Now, Ailey Extension and Area Atlanta present Ailey Experience Destination Dance Atlanta, a virtual multi-day festival. Lisa Johnson Willingham is the director of Ailey Extension. She joins us now via Zoom with Ailey Associate Artistic Director Matthew Rushing. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. Matthew, we met for the first time in Atlanta in 2009. You were a baby. <laughs> yes, you were. When you choreographed Uptown, a wonderful piece inspired by the Harlem Renaissance. And then the next time we spoke was in 2014 when you created Odetta, a tribute to the great folk singer. You continued to dance, choreograph, and now you've completed your first year as Associate Artistic Director. No doubt this year has been different than you had planned. What has it been like to serve in this position during the pandemic? Wow, uh, what a great question. I'm still trying to find words. Some of the words that come to mind, it's really felt like a roller coaster, a little bittersweet because of the situation and circumstances that we have to kind of struggle with every day. The sweet part is being part of an incredible organization that thrives on giving dance back to the people. I remember sharing with dancers and other people in the organization that the mission of the Ailey Company is one of the things that had given me strength through the pandemic, knowing that each morning I would get up and come to Zoom meetings and calls and rehearsals and being a part of still being creative, still dancing within such troubling times and realizing that now more than ever, we need the arts, we need dance, uh, we need an outlet, we need a way to connect with each other, even if it, it is over or if it's virtually or over Zoom, that these arts are really holding us together. Hmm. Every year when Ailey comes to Atlanta, the company also offers dance classes. This year's Ailey Experience Destination Dance Atlanta will be online. What virtual offerings will be available this weekend? Uh, we have so many offerings this weekend for the Ailey Experience. We have a panel discussion about the uh, global influence of Alvin Ailey. And we will have uh, the co-director of the school, Trinman, national director of Ailey Camp, Nasha Thomas. And I will be a part of the panel speaking about uh, the Ailey Extension and moderated by Jay McClendon Jones from Area Atlanta. Also, we have classes with the premier dancers of Alvin Ailey. So yes, you don't get to see the dancers perform this year, but you get to be in the room with them and learn from them 
and watch them dance through Zoom while you are dancing along beside them. Also, we have repertory classes where not only are you learning from the dancers, but you get to learn the work that you see on stage each and every year in Atlanta. We have a special master class with the Associate Artistic Director, Matthew Rushing, and a family class. At the very end, we're gonna celebrate families, togetherness, community with West African class from Maget Kamara. Wow. Lisa, for those who may not be familiar with Ailey Extension, will you explain what the program does? Yes, so the Ailey Extension exemplifies Mr. Ailey's mission to bring dance back to the people, to make dance accessible to all people. So during this pandemic, I think dance is healing. I think the arts is healing for everyone. So during this pandemic, not only have our students from uh, New York City um, join us virtually, but we've made new, we've met new students and we've grown our family international with students from all over the world. We've had students from 70 countries join us virtually through the Ailey Extension. We offer 32 classes per week in many different dance and fitness techniques and styles. Wow. On February 20th, Jeroboam Bozeman will guide participants ages 8 through 13 through a Horton class teaching them about Ailey's signature techniques. What distinguished Alvin Ailey's technique from that of other renowned dancers and teachers? Well, Mr. Ailey was one of the first directors, choreographers that created a company that what we call is a repertory company. And that means he invited other choreographers and other voices to be a part of his vision. So these repertory classes will kind of give you an example of what it takes to be a Ailey dancer. We not only have to be well-versed in ballet, but we have to be well-versed in all different modern techniques, whether it be the Horton technique or even Graham technique. We are even well-versed in hip hop, uh, contemporary, you name it, we do it. So these repertory classes will be an example of kind of what the uh, Ailey dancers are made of. And you will lead a modern dance masterclass, Lisa mentioned. What techniques will you teach? Well, really, I'm, I'm a mover. I love to watch people move. So I would basically start the class off with a Horton warm-up, and then I would like to just get into moving. I want to sh also share some movement and phrases from uh, Mr. Ailey's uh, repertory because I've always found over teaching over the years and teaching around the world, Mr. Ailey's choreography is so accessible it's simple and profound at the same time. And I really enjoy being able to teach such iconic work to people who may not been studying as long as professional dancers, but there's always still room for everyone in Mr. Ailey's choreography. So I, I'm anticipating having that exchange with the dancers. Uh, you are being very humble because 
watching you all on stage, I have to say that I don't know that there would be a place for me on stage with you in the choreography, but the spirit is beautiful. Do you think virtual offerings will continue with Alvin Ailey after things return to normal when we're back in person? Of course. We have grown a global family. So we will continue not only to have classes in the studio, but to have classes online so we can stay connected to the community that we have built for this past year. And I think it's very important. Dance, you know, is a universal language that speaks to the hearts and the spirits of people. And Alvin Ailey wanted to make dance accessible to all people, not only through the studios, but also virtually. Lisa Johnson Willingham, director of Ailey Extension, and Matthew Rushing, associate artistic director at Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. The Ailey Experience Destination Dance Atlanta virtual events begin today and run through Sunday. More information about the master classes and discussions will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Our theme music is The First Time, written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band. Special thanks to Hot Shoe Records. City Lights producer is Summer Evans. Shelley Canavy is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter. I'm inching toward another round number, and I'd love to have you follow me at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. You can also follow us on Facebook at W-A-B-E City Lights. Listen back to interviews and check out our show's archives at wabe.org slash citylights. Have a safe and good weekend. Thanks for listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.